Hi, this is Jillian Walker, and you're listening to week seven of the Falls Creek Podcast. The speaker this week was Wade Morris. If you've got a Bible, John chapter 19. Let's go there. John chapter 19. We'll start in verse 25 here in just a second. If you don't have a Bible, hopefully somebody around you has one. They'd love for you to look at it with them. John chapter 19. We'll start in verse 25. Let me just say, God's already had a great start to this camp, and he's moving in a great way, and my prayer is that he continues even more. I travel a lot, and it's interesting for me because it helps me to live where I live. In other words, uh, I live in Birmingham, Alabama. It's a city of a million people, but there's nothing to do. It's a great place to raise a family because everything shuts down at like 9 o'clock at night. And so for me, raising daughters, I absolutely love it. The great thing also is that our airport is very, very small. It may sound crazy to you, but I literally can get to the airport about 18 minutes before my flight. No problem for me to catch that flight, and I love how it's set up. But I used to live in the Dallas-Fort Worth area when I was in seminary, and it was interesting because those who don't know it, the Dallas-Fort Worth airport is the largest airport in the world in land mass. In other words, it's extremely spread out, and I remember... It was a lot of years ago that I was living out there and something happened to me that changed my mindset forever. I was driving there, had to preach at a church in Houston and I knew that I was running late and I thought to myself, there's no way my bags are going to make it so I'm going to do the best I can to just make this flight myself and I hope the church is going to be okay with me preaching in flip-flop shorts and a t-shirt because it's all I got right now. I remember running up to the Delta counter and I said, where's the flight to Houston And the lady looked at me and she goes, it's going out of gate 30. Now, if you've been to the Dallas-Fort Worth Airport and you're in the Delta Terminal, which is the E-Terminal, you know that gate number 30 is out of what they call the satellite terminal, which means it's literally about 2.7 miles from where you stand. Here I was, my flight was about to go, I wasn't sure what to do. I just thought, if I'm going to make this flight, I've got to set a world record to get there. So I remember getting through the metal detector, I took a left, and if you do it, you go about 500 yards, you'll see a sign that says satellite terminal to the right. You run about 200 yards to catch an escalator that goes down about 200 yards. You get off that escalator, you run about 50 yards to catch another escalator that goes down about another 200 yards, and when you get down there, you are praying to God there's a man in a go-kart there to pick you up. But it never works for me, but to the right, They have moving sidewalks. That's what technology does for us. And I went to the moving sidewalk, and I look up, and it's still there. The sign says, walk on the left, stand on the right. I'm running, so I'm in the middle. And I go about 500 yards. You get off one moving sidewalk to go about another 200 yards to catch another moving sidewalk to go about 500 yards. You get off that, run 100 yards to catch an escalator that goes up 200 yards. You run about 50 yards to catch another escalator that goes up 200 yards, and when you get there, you're just now starting the satellite terminal. I remember looking to the left, and gate number 30 is the last one in the hallway, and as I turn and look, the Delta red coat guy is still standing there, and the door is still open, and I remember thinking, no way I just made this. And I went to the gate as fast as I could, they'd given me a paper ticket, and I remember grabbing this ticket, was so proud of myself, And I threw that ticket down, and I looked at this man, and I said, man, this is the flight to Houston, right? And he looked at me and goes, no, sir, this is the flight to Oklahoma City. I looked at him, and I said, do what? 
He said, this is the flight to Oklahoma City. I said, you don't understand. The people in the very front told me it was like gate number 30 to go to Houston. And do you know what I just went through? And he says, no, sir, I don't. I said, can I tell you? He said, yes. And I frantically told him what I just told you. Because I was still out of breath, I was sweating to death, and as I was going through it, I had never met a more courteous man in my entire life. He wasn't just listening to me, but he was hearing me. He was in the story with me. I was telling the story, he's like, yeah, I've been on that escalator. Yeah, those moving sidewalks drive me nuts. And as he was into the story with me, I remember thinking, you know what, I'm going to finish my story. He's going to laugh and say, I was just kidding, this is the flight to Houston. And when I finally get done, I'm waiting for his response. And he leans over, smiles, and he says, sir, are you done with your story? I said, well, yes, sir. And he said, may I say something to you? And I said, yeah, you can. And he said, sir, I want to give you some advice that if you listen to me right now, it will help you for the rest of your entire life. And I looked at this man and I said, please tell me. And this is what he said. He said, sir, it doesn't matter how fast you're going if you're going in the wrong direction. In other words, what he was saying was this, it doesn't matter how fast you were running, they told you the wrong gate in the very beginning and there was no way you were ever going to catch this flight because you were going in the wrong direction. And it's interesting, when I thought about that, I thought about that's how life works. It's even the Christian life. There's a lot of times we have goals. There's a lot of times we have a destination, and we so want to get there, but because we are running so fast and we don't slow down, we miss completely where we're trying to end up. When I thought about that, I thought about the concept of what I want to speak to you tonight, because it wasn't too long ago that I was writing a sermon series on the last words of Jesus. When you start to think about the last words of Christ, and when he was dying for the sins of the world, Probably the go-to set of scriptures and the go-to story is when Jesus is dying on the cross and the two criminals, the thieves, are on either side of him. It really is a fascinating story. Jesus is literally dying for the sins of the entire world and the man next to him starts to mock him. He literally looks and says this, if you're really the son of God, then why don't you take yourself off that cross and take us off in the process? And what I love about that passage is Jesus doesn't even defend himself. The other criminal defended him. The other criminal looked and said this, you and I deserve what we are getting. We've committed the crime, but this man has done no wrong. And then Jesus looks at him and says, this day you will be with me in paradise. That's the verse that we understand. It is your faith in Christ and your belief in him that truly saves you and changes you. But it was interesting because when I got done with that, I knew there were several different stories of the last words of Christ, and I came across kind of an obscure story. And I remember when I read it, I wanted to go to the next set of verses, and I remember thinking about the advice that the man gave me, and here's what I thought. Maybe if I slow down and stop for a second and take a good look, maybe this is a different story than I thought. And when I saw that, I thought maybe this is for us tonight. So I'm going to show you this. John chapter 19, starting in verse 25, it said there, Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. 
And when Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom, who he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, dear woman, here is your son. And to his disciple, here is your mother. And from that time on, the disciple took her into his home. And that's it. It's interesting because when I started to read that, interestingly enough, I thought, well, let's just go to the next set of verses because there's not a lot right there. And then all of a sudden I stopped and this was my question. What in the world is Jesus doing having a conversation with his mother at that point? Jesus is dying for the sins of the entire world. And he looks down from the cross, he sees Mary, Mary, and he sees his mother, and then he sees the disciple who he loved, which was John, and some translations say it interesting, he looks down and says, John, behold your mother, Mary, mother, behold John, and they became a family unit for the rest of their lives. As Jesus was dying for the sins of the entire world, it's interesting, he was still trying to meet the needs of his mother as he was on that cross. And when I started to think about that, I thought, you know what? Maybe there is something here. Maybe if we slowed down and didn't go to the next set of verses, maybe we could stop and think about why in the world would Jesus have this conversation? Because he was doing something really important at the time. And I thought, maybe if we slow down and just thought at this from a different angle, maybe we'll see this, that not only was he trying to meet his mother's needs while he was dying for the sins of the world, but I've got a weird feeling he was probably trying to meet ours as well. And when I saw that, I thought, maybe that's it. So if you're taking notes, I want you to write down just a few thoughts. If you're not taking notes, just consider it like this. I believe when Jesus said the phrase, John, behold your mother, mother, Behold, John, when he said that statement, I believe he was trying to meet her needs physically. You stop and say, well, hold on, what, what does that mean? Recognize this. One side of the story is Jesus is dying for the sins of the world, but here's the flip side of that story. A mother is watching her son being murdered, and she can't do one thing about it. Imagine what's happening inside her. Imagine what she's going through. And in that moment, he says it. John, behold her. Mary, behold John. Literally, embrace. And I think he was trying to meet her need physically. And you say, what do you mean by that? Can, can I just be honest with you for a second? We all go through tough times. Listen, I mean, I, I think she was saying it earlier. We look at people on stage and... We think that maybe they're lifted up. No, they're just lifted a few feet up. Every one of us on this stage have been through tough times, are going to go through tougher times. And for me, several years ago, went through one of the toughest times of my life. And there's something that I learned. As you're going through a tough time in church, a lot of times we are spiritual. And by the way, please be spiritual. That's a great thing. But I think sometimes we forget this. When I'm going through the toughest time of my entire life and I'm in church, the last thing I need is for you to quote a verse to me. You know what I really need? I need a hug. I need you to sit with me. I need you to walk through life with me, man. And I think so many times we go straight toward that spiritual stuff that we forget 
the physical side of what that's all about. And Jesus does care about us physically. It's kind of weird. I remember when I first started going to church, one of the first things I ever heard in the church, and maybe you've heard it before, is Jesus knows the numbers of hairs on your head. Did you hear that one before? I heard that, and Jesus knows the numbers of stars in the sky. You heard that one before. But the problem was when I was 13 and started going to church, and I remember that pastor getting up and saying that, I didn't even listen to his sermon for the next 30 minutes. You know what I was thinking? How many hairs are on my head? Like, I was trying to figure that out. But I think a lot of times we forget the physical part. He does care physically what we're going through. And can I just say this as a side note just for fun? I believe it's kind of a word for us to recognize that students, you physically need to be in church. You physically, you need to be in a Bible study. We're living in a day where I love technology. Technology is a beautiful thing because I want to reach as many people for Jesus as I possibly can. But can I just say something to you? I think we forget sometimes that doing virtual church is not always the greatest thing. Because here's the deal. When you come to church and we are together as a church, here's what we forget. You coming to church is not always about you. A lot of times you're there for me. I need to be there for you. And as we start to work this together, we start to understand that as we go through life together, we are all going to have issues. And that's the problem. A lot of people stop going to church physically. Why? Because I've heard this a million times. Because they are burned by the church. That's what I hear. I've been burned by the church. You know what they really mean? The church didn't do it. Somebody offended them. And it's interesting to me because I always see those people and I always say, bro, come back to church. you got to be back there. Listen, everybody's going to offend you because here's the deal. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've all messed up, man. And by the way, the person that got offended, you're messed up too. I mean, I heard a guy say it a long time ago. If you are not the most messed up person that you know, you don't know yourself very well. But the idea behind this is we've got to get to that place where we understand we are there for each other and look at what he says in the worst probably moment of her life John behold her sit with her be with her but not only do I think he was caring about her needs physically but I think if you really think about it for a second I think he was trying to meet her need emotionally now think about this for a second remember a mother is watching her son being murdered and she can't do a thing. Can you imagine what's happening inside her? Can you imagine the anxiety she's going through, to put it in your language? The depression that she's dealing with? Students, I think a lot of times you forget that your mama loves you. And I'm going to say this in a real way. I got two girls. They're 16 and 12. And a lot of times what happens is kids do this. If they don't get something from one, they go to the other parent, right? And it's interesting to me because I always have to remind my daughters, and I'll just say that to you, I look at my daughters all the time and I say this, hey, daddy loves you, but can I just say something to you girls? And they go, what? Your mama loves you. There's a big difference in a daddy's love and a mama's love. You just need to get that one straight. I've seen that stuff, man. There is something that happens to a woman bearing a child, for that matter, it's not just about bearing a child. What you have to go through to adopt a child, 
There is something that snaps in a woman, and I see it, that they love that kid no matter what, to the point to where people in the church make fun of them. Because I know mothers who are inside the church who those mothers love their kids even when they become drug addicts. They love those kids even when they end up in prison. And when I started to think about that, I thought, think about the concept of what's happening. Jesus, being all-knowing, knows what she's going through. He knows what she's dealing with. And he stops and he says this, John, behold her. Mary, behold him. He was trying to meet the needs of what she was going through. Can I just say this? We are in a messed up place, especially in America, emotionally right now. More of you are dealing with anxiety than ever before. More of you are dealing with depression than ever before. In America, depression and anxiety is higher than it's ever been. People are on medication for it more than we've ever had. And somewhere along the line, not only do we have to fix this, but we've got to understand it's bigger than we think. It's interesting because I was on a plane like a month ago, and I remember this lady coming and sitting next to me, and she's on TV, and I remember looking at her. I don't even know why I said it. I looked at her, and I go, are you tired? She looked at me and goes, what? And I said, no, 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 you don't look tired. I just know what you're dealing with on TV. Are you tired? And listen to me. She broke down crying. And I remember her looking at me, and this is the exact phrase that came out of her mouth. My anxiety and depression are wrecking me. Hey, listen, that's not coming from a 15-year-old kid. That was a 24-year-old woman. If we don't stop to understand what's happening, we're in a lot of trouble. Listen, my daughter, Eden, is what I call a worrier. When I say a worrier, listen. I mean, seriously. She worries about everything to the point to where her younger sister makes fun of her. My, she wants to be a surgeon, and she checks her grades about five times a day to the point to where her 12-year-old sister's like, your grades have not changed since we've been eating dinner. It's, it's that bad. And she just continued to be, she is that person that cares about what everybody thinks. She wants people over, and I say it all the time. If you ever meet my oldest daughter, she literally is the nicest person you were ever going to meet in your entire life. She's the most courteous, sweet little girl you were ever going to meet in your entire life. And I know that some of y'all are going to yeah, but you're being biased because you're her father. No, let me be unbiased. My youngest daughter, she's not the nicest person you're ever going to meet. And I'm saying that because she's like me, right? She's real in your face. Oldest daughter is like mama. She's sweet. But I still remember her asking me one day, can I have somebody come spend the night at the house? I want one of my friends to spend the night with me. Now, just so you know, I, I know that sounds like a very common thing. I travel 200 days a year, and I'm just going to be honest with you. The last thing I want at my house is some random kid hanging out. But I also know that my daughters need to be somewhat normal. And I remember it was a couple years ago, and I'm looking at Eden, and I go, you know what? Yeah, let's do that. I've only got a couple days off, but you have your friend come over. And I thought, I'm going to go into super dad mode. We're going to do this thing right and man, I was like doing everything, doing movies and stuff. The next day, I got up at five in the morning, went and got hot Krispy Kreme donuts, ate those things. It was great. But my favorite time out of the 24 hours that that girl was there was 
when I heard her mom honk the car to pick her up. And we walked this girl out, and we were like, oh, no, thank you. Yeah, come over anytime. I probably lied. And I remember waving by, and my daughter and I walked back in. We sat on the couch, and I'm about to say something in, right now, and every girl in the room is going to get it. The guys, you're going to have to ask them to explain it later on. We sat on the couch, and my daughter started to cry. I looked at her, and I go, honey, what is wrong? And every girl's about to relate to this right now. She looked at me and goes, I don't have any friends. <laughs> you know it. But listen to this. Listen now. Hey, she says that, and do you know what daddy was thinking? Then who was that in my house last night? She goes, what? I go, who was that chick in my house? And then her response was, but I don't have many friends. And what I started to realize is, dude, even my daughter, she deals with this stuff and she's so worried and it jacks the anxiety up. And, and as a dad, I try to fix it. That's what we do. But it's interesting because I remember one day coming up with a verse, which I told you not to do. And I looked at him, I looked at her and said, hey, honey, you know what? The Bible says don't worry about tomorrow. She's a worrier. Don't worry about tomorrow because today has enough problems of its own. That's an awesome verse unless you're a worrier. <laughs> and that verse doesn't mean anything to you. It's the way it works. So do you know where we landed? I found a verse, and this is what I said, and she landed on it. The faith of a mustard seed will move mountains. In other words, you may worry because it's part of your nature, but you've got to see the light at the end of the tunnel and know that God's going to take care of this stuff. And it's interesting because you know what she did? She went and made these little mustard seed necklaces. And she took them to her friends at church, and there were seven of them. And it was weird because the first Sunday I thought, oh, that's cool, you're wearing that little necklace. Yeah, my daughter made that, yeah. The next week, they're still wearing them. The next week, high school girls, still wearing them. And I remember looking at Eden and I go, what's the deal? They said, Dad, their anxiety and what they deal with, it's a lot bigger than you think. And I looked at her and I said, I've got to figure this out. I said, how much does it cost you to make those necklaces? She goes, five bucks. I go, make me 200 of them and let me watch what happens. She made 200. I went to Arkansas. And I remember putting those mustard seed necklaces out I talked about them for one second here's the deal all 200 of them were gone in that session I was watching one by one all of these sweet precious girls that were dealing with stuff saying I need this I need this and then all of a sudden this huge dude walks up <laughs> and I knew who he was I'll get there but I remember him walking up, he just graduated high school, played football in Texas, won the state championship as a quarterback, full scholarship to go to college, and he comes up and goes, hey man, I'd like to buy one of those things. And I looked at him trying to be cool and I go, that's awesome man, you buying this for your girlfriend? He goes, I'm buying it for me. And in my mind I was thinking, I thought this was a girl thing. And he looks at me and says, hey, bro, I know what you're thinking. He goes, I'm probably not going to wear this thing, but can I say something to you? I go, yeah. 
He goes, every single time I walk in the huddle to call a play, do you understand the pressure that I'm under every single time? He goes, that thing's going to go up in my locker to remind me I'm going to get through this. No and all of a sudden it hit me. This is bigger than I could ever imagine. It's holding so many people back from allowing Christ to heal them and to do stuff in them. And I just wanted to give you this word tonight. Jesus was dying for the sins of the entire world. And he paused long enough for his mother to get a hug. Think about how much he cares about what you're dealing with right now. Because all of us would give him a pass if he was like, hey Mary, I'm doing something kind of important right now. But you know what's interesting? Because he's Jesus, he can die for the sins of the world and meet every individual need in the same, same time. He was caring about us physically. He was caring about us emotionally. And here's the third and last thing. When he made that statement, he was caring about her spiritually as well. I know that sounds weird, but you've got to follow me. When Jesus makes that statement, John, behold Mary, Mary, behold John, when he makes that statement, up until that moment, Jesus had one and only one role in Mary's life. He was her son. But I think sometimes because we're rushing through Scripture so fast, we forget this, because this is one of the most pivotal moments in all of Scripture right here. So watch it. When Jesus makes this statement, in her life, he had a complete role reversal. In one statement, John behold Mary, Mary behold John, in one statement, he went from being her son to being her savior. Because if he is the greatest son, and he was, you know that just like us, if he could have, he would come off that cross and he would have been the one to console her. But he didn't do that. He knew what his mother was going through. He could see it. And he had John step in because here's what he was saying to his mother. He was saying, Mary, I know what you're dealing with. Mary, I know what you're going through. But I'm dying for the sins of the world right now. And Mary, here's what you need to understand in this statement. If I come off this cross to console you, not only can the world not be saved, but you can't be saved either. You see, students, here's what I believe. I believe a lot of you have never really understood a personal relationship with Jesus because... When we see Jesus dying on the cross, it's from a 30,000 foot view. Here's the statement I have said tonight and a lot of you say. Well, he was dying for the sins of the world and tonight, here's what I need you to know, know this. No, 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 no. He was dying for your sin. Wait, he endured that pain for the world. No, 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 he endured it for you. Wait, he stayed on that cross for the world. No, he stayed on the cross for you. It's when you understand that, that you change everything from knowing something about Jesus to allowing him to change you forever. 
I was just in Seoul, Korea speaking. I go every year. And for several years in a row, it was interesting because we've seen God move. I go to a Christian school over there, and 20% of them claim to be Christians. It's just the way it works over there. They're all trying to get to Ivy League schools over here in America. And I remember three years in a row, we saw 40 salvations. We saw 50 salvations. God was doing great stuff. And I took my family the last time because Eden looked at me and said, if you ever go back, Dad, I want to go. Took the whole family. And for three days in a row, just a little bit, three days in a row, we didn't see quite as much as we normally do. And it was bothering me. But that's how God works sometimes. And as we were going through it, I don't even know why, I looked at my daughter before I spoke on that first day. She was 15 at the time. And I said, hey, I need you to give your testimony. It's got to be brief. And you've got about two minutes to figure this out. I'm not that guy that asked her to give her testimony. No, no, no. If you're a Christian, you're giving it. And it was interesting because in her sweet little way, she stands up. And literally, it was 62 seconds. That was how long her sermon was. And this is what she said. I grew up in church. My dad's a minister. I go to a Christian school. She said, I need y'all to understand, I've grown up knowing a lot of stuff about God, but I never knew him. She said, but there was a point in my life where I responded for what he did for me, not just for the world. And when he changed me, here's what she said, it changed my perspective of how I viewed the world, how I viewed my friends, and check this out, and how I viewed myself. She walks off stage, and I remember thinking to myself, well, that's pretty good. I think I'll just give an invitation instead. And we had 42 salvations after that message. The simple message, he did it for you. I was a business finance major in college. Because of that, I'm a numbers guy. And I read an article at the end of 2018 that drove me nuts because, like anxiety and depression, in America, we're more in debt than we've ever been. It's just the truth. But here was the article I read, and I think I was about to go insane. It said, in America alone, at the end of 2018, there were $1 billion in the gift cards that went completely unclaimed. In other words, we've become so impersonal, I don't think about the gift I'm going to give you. I'm just going to buy you a $50 gift card to the Gap and go have fun. And you know what happens? We go to a party, some Christmas party, we get those cards, you throw them down in your seat, they fall off, they're under your seat, you're about to check them when you go back home. And you know what happens? At the end of the year, nothing gets $1 billion went completely unclaimed. People are in debt more than ever, and that's what happens. Students, listen to me, and I want you to hear this hard. Jesus didn't die a tragic death on a cross, so you would not redeem that tonight. He died a tragic death and lives today, so you would stand up and say, I'm not holding on to it, Jesus. I give my life to you, and that is my hope. Could you just bow your heads for a second?
and do this with me, just with your heads bowed. Could you all just quietly stand where you are? Could you just quietly just stand? And as the band just plays, can y'all just look at me just for one second? Just, just give me your eyes just for one second. The joy of my heart coming to Falls Creek is not just speaking and hanging out with a bunch of cool people. It's seeing God move in a real way. And I know it happens every week regardless of the speaker. That's because God moves here. But I always have to do this to kind of put this to you so you hear my heart. I know there's an expectation that happens in invitations because we're going to give them every night from here forward. But I want you to know something that maybe speakers don't tell you a whole lot, so hear my heart. This is just me. If in the next few minutes, or for that matter, for the rest of this week, if you do not want to respond to Jesus, then don't do it. And I'm serious when I say that. I know it sounds weird coming from a preacher. The last thing I want, the last thing this band wants, the last thing any of your pastors want is one more student being manipulated to pray some prayer that you don't mean and you leave here and two months later you're right back where you started from. I would rather 50 or 60 of you pray and give your life to Christ tonight. Life and become a world changer. Then 800 of you becoming a number and nothing happens. So if you don't want to respond to Jesus in the next few minutes, then don't do it. But I'm going to say this to you personally, and I'm going to say this to you biblically. Those who yes to, say yes to Jesus when it comes to salvation, your life will never be the same. It is the greatest decision that you are going to make, but you have to make it. But students, here's the key. The key is you have to know the difference between a spiritual moment and salvation. We don't leave enough room in the church anymore for people to do what I call get there. In other words, I'm a math mind. My daughter just took geometry, and she came to me and said, Dad, I just don't, I don't get it. I don't understand it. You know what I said? Nobody gets geometry in the beginning because it's a different kind of math. But you know what I told her? If you get a tutor, if you go to your teacher, if you study really hard, there's going to be that moment that you go, oh, this is how this works. You know what? We don't leave enough room for that in the church, and it's bothering me now. See, I see a lot of students, and for that matter, a lot of adults, they have spiritual moments, and they substitute the spiritual moment for salvation, and that's going to mess you up in eternity now. But I did this, and I did that. Can I just tell you, when Eden received the Lord, she was 10 years old. That sounds weird, because y'all know how evangelists lie and exaggerate. You know, every evangelist I know, my daughter got saved at two days old. That's how they are. But listen to me. I never wanted to shove it down her throat because I want my daughters to own the gospel, man. And you know what? She got saved, not when I was preaching. I was preaching in Texas. My wife texted me, your daughter received the Lord today. I remember coming home, and I sat down with Eden at 10, and I go, what happened to you? And here's what she said. Dad, I truly can't explain it to you. All I know is the worship leader 
stopped his song and told me a story about Christ on the cross that I'd heard my entire life. She says, but dad, for some reason when I was listening to him, all of a sudden, everything you said to me for 10 years, it made sense. So I gave my life to Christ. You see, that's how it's supposed to happen. Not when everybody reads a book when they're nine. And then people mess it up and you say, what do you mean? The Bible says it like this, and I want you to hear my heart. Scripture's gotta be unlocked in you. Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised from the dead, the Bible says then you will be saved. Here's the problem in a place like this. You would go, oh, well that's it? Wait, I prayed that verse a long time ago. That's awesome. Do you know this? That verse means you gotta do more than pray something. You actually have to mean it when you pray it. And you know what I found out? I talk to students all the time, adults, that this is your story. Well, when I was eight years old, my mom and came and told me a story about Jesus, and I'm glad she did. And at the end of that, she said, do you want to pray this prayer? And here's what's weird. Some of you in this room prayed a prayer when you were eight, not because you meant it with your heart. You did it because you didn't want to let your mom down. It's not salvation. Some of you, when you were 13 or 14, went to something like this, and sometimes emotions get ramped up. I try to pull them back down if I can. Because I see people look at... And they say this at a camp like this, let's all go make that decision together. If we all do it, we'll remember this forever. And maybe that happened to you and you're the only one that thought, I don't think I'm ready for this yet. But you went down with your friends anyway and you prayed a prayer, not because you meant it, but because you didn't want to not be part of the group. Jesus said these words, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man, no woman comes to the Father but through me. You know what that means? Your mom, as much as she loves you students, she can't get you into heaven. An emotional moment doesn't get you into heaven. A dude like me can't get you to heaven. It comes when you pray this and you mean this. And in a second, I want to give some of you a chance to maybe have that aha moment. Because some of you have maybe been coming to Falls Creek for six, seven years in a row. And he's been doing stuff in you, and he's been opening your mind. And maybe tonight's the night. It's time for you to go, wait, 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 wait. He died for me. I'm ready to give my life to him. And all of a sudden, it comes together. But it comes when you're willing to step out and say, Jesus, can you do this in me? So my hope and my prayer is that you take this seriously in the next few minutes. If you were in this place and you say, wait, I know I'm not a Christian, and I need to give my life to Christ. In a second, we're going to start to sing, and I'm going to ask you to come down forward and to meet me right here. But watch this. Some of you in this room say, wait, I'll be honest. I'm not sure. I'm not positive. If I died tonight, I'd go to heaven. Listen to me. That's the most important decision of your life, man. People walk into a room like this pretty sure of salvation. They leave pretty sure of salvation. You've got to be kidding me, man. Jesus didn't die on a cross for you to be pretty sure of anything. He went to that extreme so you would know what you have. And if you're in this place tonight as a student or an adult, you say, wait, I'm not sure if I die tonight go to heaven. Tonight's a great night for you to say, you know what? I've had a bunch of spiritual moments maybe. I've been in the church, but I haven't truly done that. You see, we use big words as preachers like God's sovereignty just means God knows what he's doing and if you give God enough credit those of you who've grown up and been around church all your life here's what you're gonna find out 
for some of you, God actually put you in a Christian home for a reason. For some of you, God had some of you going to a Christian school for a reason. For some of you, he's had you going on four mission trips for a reason. And you say, what's that reason? For some of you, for this very night. Because he's been doing all of that in you so that the scales could be taken away from your eyes and your heart would be opened. And you would say, he died for me. Maybe at 16 years old, at 14, you're ready to say, it's not enough for my mom to do it. It's not enough for my pastor to want it. Tonight, I'm going to give my life to that. So if you're in this place, I know I'm not a Christian. I'm going to give my life to Christ. Come after I pray. And then, if you're not sure if you died tonight, I'm begging you tonight. Don't leave this place without knowing what you have in Christ and salvation. So I'm going to pray. After I pray, the band's going to sing. And you say, wait, that's me. I need to make that decision tonight. From the very back to the middle to the front, all you got to do is come down here and meet me. Lord Jesus, right now, I'm begging you to do something in this room that maybe you have never done. Lord, you tell us in Ephesians that you can do more than we can pray for or ask for. So God, tonight I'm not praying for 100 salvations, for 200. Lord, I'm literally praying tonight in your power could you save every soul in this room that's truly not saved? And may we walk out of this place tonight forgetting the name of a speaker or a band and say, whoa, we just encountered God moving in a way that we've never seen it so that you will be the only one to get the glory. So Lord, would you save souls tonight? We love you and we follow you. It's in the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Thanks for listening.